0: Hello there and welcome to the latest episode of Over Our Garden Mall Music Podcast with our special guest Douglas T. Stewart. The full podcast including all songs chosen by Douglas can be heard on Spotify, Search so Over Our Garden Mall. However, if you can't access Spotify, this is a copy of all the chat from the podcast. You can of course listen to Douglas's songs on Apple Music too, just not in this podcast. Apologies for this and hopefully one day we can publish in full on Apple as we do on Spotify. Enjoy, stay safe. Hello there and welcome to the latest episode of Over Our Garden Wall, a music podcast that is setting out to establish, if possible, what the best year for popular music was. To help us do that, we'll be joined by a special guest on each episode who will nominate their favourite year and provide a playlist of songs from that year, which we'll listen to, discuss and no doubt debate. I'm Brian Davidson and I'm joined today by my co-host and neighbour, me How how you doing mate?
1: Hi, <coughs> sorry. Drogging my throat there. Yeah, I'm good, thanks.
0: Yeah, good start. And more, <laughs> and more importantly by today's guest, Douglas T. Stewart. Douglas has been leader and the main composer in the BMX Bandits since they formed in the mid-1980s. Additionally, he has co-written material for the Perfishers and produced recordings for artists including Alex Chilton, Eugene Kelly and Norman Blake. He has also co-organised critically acclaimed tribute shows to some of his favourite artists, some of whom we will talk about today. According to Harry Mulligan from Loud and the More magazine, Douglas is also the wizard of whimsy as well as being one of scotland's national treasures Douglas describes himself as a bmx bandit a dreamer and a romantic fool but not necessarily in that order hi douglas welcome to our podcast
2: hiya it's lovely to be here
0: thanks very much for taking the time to join us today we really appreciate it
2: no it's good to have a new friend and also an old friend present is um it's a very nice way to spend an evening
0: Thank you, we Will go on to your association with Mr McDermott, I'm sure, through the night. And we're really looking forward to playing some of your tunes you've chosen from your nominated year, which is...
2: 1969.
0: 1969. We've had some fantastic years in Guess already, all making a case for their years being the best. And your 1969 playlist looks the business too, and very eclectic, which is great. So, intro's over, let's play your first selection. From June 1969, this is the unmistakable sound of The Beach Boys with Breakaway. that was the Beach Boys with Breakaway. So let's get stuck into the discussion, Douglas. Why
2: 1969? I think 1969 is sort of a year, but when I look back on it, I sort of remember almost like the year I came online. You know, I was obviously around and I have vague memories of certain things when I was younger, but certainly it feels like that was the year that I began to really be interested in things like pop music. And I have strong memories of certain things on TV. Before that, it all feels it's a bit vague. And um, I guess one of the big things that happened in 1969 uh, for the world was the moon landing. And it's a strange thing because I've got lots of friends that are just a bit younger than me. And I've got quite a few friends that are quite a bit older. And um, my partner, Chloe, she's a uh, a a good bit younger than me, who always go, What? You were alive when the moon landing happened? How could that be? But um, it's one of my first TV memories. And I think part of the reason I remember it was to my dad, he felt it was like something really important and he wanted us to watch. And he never bought newspapers, but he bought a copy of the Glasgow Herald from that day, you know, and kept it aside. It's something to have. Yeah. And so we watched the coverage of The Moonland and was on a lot with, with uh, James Burke, broadcaster, kind of a really interesting, curious character and really brainy, uh, but witty as well and very sharp. I remember him with his thick horn-rimmed glasses, kind of uh, doing bits of kind of commentary and giving insights. And um, yeah, so for me, it's a time where I remember actually seeing things on top of the Pops and my parents had this Hits of 1969 album, which was all actually not the, not the artists. It was a bit like the top of the Pops albums. It was all people impersonating the original yeah. artists. But yeah. it made me very familiar with a lot of music from that time. And, you know, I love it. I almost find it difficult, which might seem as if I'm going against the, the ethos of us picking a favorite year just musically, but for me, this is such an important year because it's a kind of represents my kind of almost awakening. Yeah, uh, as being interested in not just music, but music and culture and what was happening in the world around me rather than just that little isolated world of being a child in a nice family. Yeah,
0: and the other guests have said the same thing. They've said that, you know, ask them on a different day and they might have picked a different year, you know, as a, as a difficult, quite an emotional thing as, as well to make a decision on. Would there have been any other years maybe that would have jumped out at you as, as being one of your favourites? Or was it always 69, do you think?
2: I think 69 was the one that pulled me the most. I mean, I've right. got favourite records, but obviously you're going, man, I almost wish it could be that so I could mention that record, but it doesn't quite fit. But this year, it just feels, um. There's enough of a reason that it sets us year apart because it's almost like my year one. As I say, obviously, I was hearing some records. Obviously, I was sitting in front of the TV watching whatever before then. But yeah, this is a year I really think back. And I can actually, maybe I've slightly altered them as the years go by, but I almost feel like I can feel almost the emotions of some of the stuff and how Mm. I reacted to it the Beach Boys, you know Brian Wilson ended up being one of my greatest musical heroes and greatest influences, and I remember hearing Breakaway, Breakaway is one of those records that the Beach Boys had in America, it almost meant nothing but in Britain they were still big news, Mm. and that record, you know, meant a lot, and it's a kind of interesting thing because I think it's the only song that Brian wrote with his dad, Murray Wilson, Murray Wilson sort of almost you know, seen or portrayed as this kind of monstrous kind of figure and uh, one thing that um, would make him turn from a monster into a quite angelic thing was the power of music mm-hmm. and uh, the family singing. Did he, and so did it's kind write of it interesting a, that Brian wrote Break Away did, With His Dad. Did
0: they write it under a pseudonym or something? Yeah, they wrote
2: did, it under the name Reggie Dunbar. I don't know why Reggie Dunbar, but yeah, it was Murray Wilson. So it's Brian Wilson and Murray Wilson wrote it together. And I, I don't know, I, it's still one of my favourite Beach Boys tracks, Or so it's just something about it.
0: I did pick up a little quote from Brian Wilson. I know he's 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 got many quotes, hasn't he, over the years? Um, but he did say when someone asked the question about why did your dad write it under a pseudonym, he said, "I don't know. He was nutty. He was crazy. <laughs> he didn't want anyone to know he wrote he wrote a song with me." So, <laughs> so uh, I, I think even Brian wasn't too sure why why that was. But yeah, uh, but it was quite big. I wasn't. I think it was top ten in, in the UK. There was, yeah, no as I say, be, they, yeah.
2: but it's ha- funny because to me. Um, when I started having friends from America, because, you know, you'd meet other people bands, I'd be talking about certain Brian, certain Brian Wilson tracks or Beach Boys tracks that I really loved, and you'd mention them like Breakaway, and they'd go, what's that one? Mm. And I'd go, what do you mean? It was a big hit. And they are going, no. <laughs> and it was just almost like, for a while, they felt like those were the lost years for the Beach Boys in America. But, yeah, in Europe and in um, Britain, they were still pretty important.
0: So this was connected to like the Sunflower sessions and stuff, but it came out as a standalone signal, I think, didn't it? It Well, it was just
2: before we changed record labels. So it was kind of, I guess, the end of kind of contractual obligation to Capitol Records. Um, And it was a standalone single. Obviously since then it's been put onto these kind of, there was things like two for kind of CD reissues where they would have extra tracks and stuff like that. And it would be put on those, but, Yeah, as I say, I just, I think it's a great, a great single. It's got a kind of very joyous thing, but it's also got a real melancholy. And that's uh, one of the things that attracts me to a lot of music. I like when there's a duality of something that's kind of funny or uplifting, but also it's kind of poignant at the same time. And I think there's going to be a bit of a common thread in some of my other choices of that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think there will be. I think the, the sort of Brian Wilson Story, if you want, is, is fascinating in itself, isn't it? You, you know, mm-hmm. you, sort of geniuses, it's an overused word, isn't it? But he um, absolutely ticks that box.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's not a genius in every thread of life. You know, I remember reading an autobiography, not an autobiography, a biography of him that described him as um, a musical genius and an amateur human being. And I think that's maybe a little bit unkind, you know, but I, I, I get what we're saying. He, he, he wasn't a genius at living life. But he was a genius at creating music and expressing himself through music, yeah. and he still is.
0: And funny enough, I think when the album did come out, um, what a year or so later, as you say, they went on a new label, but they actually got really good reviews for Sunflower, but didn't mm. sell particularly well. So they would kind of flipped from being this really popular, commercial, surfing-type band to being critically acclaimed and, and not selling so many records. It must be very hard to get that, that tipping point between the no. two.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess there was a point in 1966, where they sort of almost hit that balance, 66, 67, mm-hmm. where they'd, even in America, they'd gained a lot of credibility, uh, Pet Sounds had been a real flop for them, but it definitely gained them credibility, and then Good Vibrations was a massive hit, their biggest hit by that point. And it was commercially commercially massive, critically came, and then in America, it began to all kind of fall away.
0: Yeah, did and and I, and I say I know you're a big fan of Brian Wilson. The story goes that you um you sang with our backing band one night. Yeah, I,
2: well, and I've 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 been lucky enough to meet Brian in and interview Brian yeah. with my friend David Scott and stuff. Um, well, he wasn't really gigging. David and I got invited out to London to do an interview, with just yeah. like him and his and his wife Melinda, and that was amazing. Um. But yeah, I, uh, after one of the Glasgow gigs, his band went to a party at a, a club down in um, the kind of uh, merchant city in Glasgow. And um, I got to sing, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the song. She's not the little girl I want, you. she's not the little girl I want. <laughs> yeah. I love I the song, but currently I'm taking a blank and look at the actual title of
0: it is. We deal check it and find, find it for The first.
2: little girl I, I once knew, the little girl I, I used to know. No. The little girl I used to know. Yeah, yeah I think that's it, yeah, yeah. She's not the little girl I used to know. She's not. <laughs> yeah, I got to sing it. Fortunately, I could remember the lyrics that night. I just shows you, it was a few years ago. <laughs>
0: yeah, and, and, and they weren't Japanese either, which helped. Um,
1: Douglas has got an absolutely brilliant Brian Wilson story I don't know if he wants to tell it as part of this podcast but it's the one about, um, was it Glenn Frey? Oh
2: yeah, is it Glenn Frey? Who's the other? Don Henley
1: Don Henley I actually, I I use this when I'm teaching this story It's so good
2: I mean I'll tell it, and you can always edit it out but um, yeah, it's actually Evie Sands' story Um, when Brian just came back and he was doing a gig, I think it was maybe even at the Hollywood Bowl. And uh, all of the great good of the Californian music industry were all at the show and senders. And you know, people like Paul McCartney, I think, had flown in for it and stuff. And afterwards there was a kind of reception. And Evie Sands was sitting at a table quite close to Brian. And she was saying it was really interesting because there was all these people who were big stars queuing up to get things signed. You know, kind of people who you wouldn't normally see in that side of the thing. And um one of the people in the queue was Don Henley, solo artist, and also one of the Eagles. And the Eagles have sold way more records than the Beach Boys have sold, you know, there and particularly in America. were such a massive, massive group. But um Don Henley apparently had this really beautiful print of a photograph of Brian standing on a surfboard. Of course, Brian doesn't really surf, but you know, it's really nice print. And he asked Brian if he would sign it and Brian got his Sharpie and wrote, to Don, thanks for all the great music, Brian. And, you know, Don walks away kind of happy. And I think he was pretty much the last person to be getting any And Evie was watching Brian and she saw him kind of, you know, thinking and looking a little bit troubled. And then he suddenly stood bolt upright and started shouting across the room. Don! Don, you need to bring the picture back. You need to bring a picture back. So Don Henley brings the picture back, and of course, everybody's paying attention. And Brian gets it, he's going, I just made a mistake. And he scores out the word great and writes, (laughs) and writes, good. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think that's Brian being malicious or anything. I just think Brian straightly meant, oh, maybe great's a bit strong. Yeah, I, I hear you. Know. <laughs> <laughs> but how, uh, I mean, that's, that's, you know, replacing the word with another word is yeah. just, you know, what a coloured blow. <laughs> He's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've got
1: I've got a Greenock connection. The person who ran the Beach Boys fan club was from Guruk, as far as I know, and I just checked this with my mate Kenny, and I, I just asked him, "Is Brian Wilson been in Greenock or Guruk? And apparently he had a fish tea up in Butte Street when the rest of the band were playing golf at Loch Lomond before or after a Glasgow gig. So I don't know when, when it actually was, but Brian Wilson has been in this V town.
0: Yeah, he he would know It's incredible. To be fair, yeah. I, I don't think because um, it's it's full of characters. It absolutely is. And you also you did um you you did a sort of compilation tribute album, didn't you? With uh, was it I think Douglas McIntyre produced that with you?
2: Uh, no, it was um, David Scott. It was David's, yeah, was it? Um, Douglas things. is on it with the Seagree ah, Goldfish. Right. Okay, okay.
0: Um, that was but, Carling Now, is that,
2: is that right? Yeah, and there's a few tracks in it that we didn't produce like Douglas's track and a track by the High Llamas and things where you know, it was more just the bands were asked to contribute, but quite a lot of the artists, people like um, Evie Sands and um, with the songwriter Chip Taylor, they did a track and we produced that. We produced people like Jad Fair and Eugene Kelly, Norman Blake, Alex Chilton um all doing uh, brian wilson or well actually there's a couple of dennis wilson covers on it as well so it was yeah. a it was very much uh meant to be a tribute not just to brian but to brian and the beach boys mm. so yeah there's a couple of De- dennis songs in there as well
0: and i know i know you can still stream it is it available to get is, it a, is there hard copies available or
2: um, as far as I know, Marina yeah. probably, Marina the label brought it out. In fact, um, Douglas's band uh, made the controversial move of doing a cover version of a Mike Love song, okay. The Secret Goldfish, and, um, uh, uh, a Mike Love song, um, which is actually a really, really beautiful song. It's called Big Sir. It's on the album Holland, but the version in Holland, I think, stinks. But there's a version um, that was on bootlegs for years and years, which is really pretty different arranged really differently. And that sounds like the version that The Secret Goldfish based their version on. Um, you know, Mike, Mike Love, um, complicated character, but he made a big contribution to that whole thing. You know, I'd, I don't think it should be completely written off musically, and uh, that's on Big Sur's. It's a, a favourite of mine as long as it's the right version.
0: Okay.
1: Oh, did, I'll that in you, mind. Did you do a tribute? Uh, the Pendletons, was that you and some other?
2: Yeah, we did We did a couple of, in fact, we done a few nights of um, a tribute kind of gig to Brian Wilson again before he was touring live. And that's how David Scott and I got invited down to interview him. We got to film the interview uh, to play at the concert. And as I say, you know, the, the notion of meeting Brian Wilson at that time just seemed almost unbelievable because he wasn't out playing live or anything that like. he was in town uh, to help promote the record that the beach Boys and states Co made together mm-hmm. which you know wasn't once wasn't musically a brilliant thing <laughs> for me but um I was very grateful he was there and yeah. so yeah we got to travel down and uh, meet them and then we played that live on a screen you know and it was I don't think we even warned people that was going to happen. And you could see people at the the gig. It was almost like, how do we follow that now with the music? Because their minds were blown just yeah. seeing Brian in that context with David. And I, you know, yeah, it was
0: fantastic. Uh, so that was an
2: incredible thing.
0: And, and am I right in reading somewhere that I think you've got a Beach Boys record in your top ten albums of all time? I think one of your. Well, on two, I'd
2: probably I would say two of them would be in there. Right. I would have uh, pet sounds in there, which is probably not that surprising for people. But the one I'd probably have actually higher up is an album called Beach Boys Love You from yeah. 1977. Uh, that was the album that I was kind of wishing in a way I'd went for that year. Um, which Brian Wilson told me twice, including that time David Scott and I went down unprompted by us but that was his favourite Beach Boys album, mm. you know. Um, it's so different try... as well,
0: isn't it, to the, yeah. the sort of normal Beach Boys sound
2: that you would have? It's kind of synthy and pretty kind of naive. It's and not, it, musically, the thing is, if you try and play the songs, but yeah. like typical Brian Wilson songs, as in to actually work out the chords and things, they're incredibly complex, but they sound quite childlike and um, quite innocent. And uh, yeah, that's my favourite Beach Boys album. Uh, Alex Chilton's favourite Beach Boys album as well. He could play every song. On Beach Boys Love You and knew all the words for all the songs. Um he could play them on guitar. Um and when we did the Caroline No album, he picked now it could sort of the Caroline Now album, he picked um a track from Love You to cover that because uh he loved that album so much. It's definitely it's one of those albums that kind of splits the vote. But those yeah. who do love it really love it. Love it. Yeah.
0: Well again, I'm sure that when the guys see the podcast that'll be another one they'll go and tune into. because um, it doesn't get that much um Airplay does it really compare mm-hmm. to the other stuff. So well, there you are, a whole bunch of stuff to do with the Beach Boys there and, and back to the song originally. A great way to start the the podcast as well. Fantastic song um from 1969. So we'll come to your next selection in a second, Douglas spitting You mentioned this in your intro, but I thought it'd be worth with a wee bit of context about some of the other kind of big cultural events yeah. that took place in 69, because it'll probably lead us into chatting a bit about your second selection. Mm-hmm. So these, these are all things I've picked up that happened in the first six months of 69. And they're, they're not musical, they're just, um, they're related to the year, but they're all sort of fairly important themselves. So in January, we had um, Richard Nixon sworn in as the 37th president of the United States, which was very topical at the time, mm-hmm. and no doubt we'll come back to that. Uh, the Boeing 747 flew for the first time from Washington, and they also Concorde test flight happened in the February as well. So sort of fairly big you know, events mm-hmm. making the world a, a sort of smaller place or a bigger place, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you had James L. Ray pleading guilty to assassinating Mar- Martin Luther King, which of course he subsequently retracted. Uh, that was in February. Uh, the Godfather was published by Mario Puzo in February. Mm-hmm. Uh, British troops arrived in Northern Ireland to reinforce the RUC. That was in March. Um, Franco closed the Gibraltar-Spain border in June and didn't open it again until 1982. So again, sort of pretty, pretty big message. Uh, July the 8th, the Vietnam War, the very first US troops withdrawals are made. So that was the first sort of step back from mm-hmm. everything that would going on in the 60s, obviously through the, so these, the, you know, they're kind of, these aren't little passing things, are they? They're, they're really, you know, any one of those things is a whole discussion. They're and it's all happening in the sort of five or six months of, of the of the first part of 1969.
2: Yeah. I mean, obviously a lot of that stuff I wasn't aware of. And it's amazing, although I was sort of saying this is a year I felt like I very much kind of came online. I found a lot of other things that I wasn't aware of at the time that I find really, really interesting about the year or, you know, pieces of art, like movies and records I wasn't aware of then. But, you know, it feels like they became later, became significant parts of kind of my world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you did talk about one of the things you do remember from 69, which was the um, the Apollo moon landing, yeah. which I think was in July, um, 21st of July, I think that year. Um, And I, I'm also old enough to remember it, just uh, not really remember the detail, but I remember what a big thing it was at the time. And um, it's kind of vexed my memory, but you've taken that and you've connected it to your next election, which I thought was really interesting. So tell us um, about your next election then.
2: Yeah, well, during the kind of broadcasts of uh, the moon landing, I mean, television used to be a bit more flexible back then, anyway. But I think it was the sort of thing like um, they never one hundred percent knew when things were going to be happening that they would have to cut in things. And one of the main things I remember being shown between kind of moon landing stuff was um, the adventures of Robinson Crusoe, which was um, a European TV series, which had been dubbed into English. And when it was dubbed into English, um, it's not like now where you'd be having the different channels where you could just replace the vocals and have the same music. You just had to strip it off the soundtrack completely. And they had to write a new audio soundtrack of music to go along with the new dialogue. Um, and I always assumed this would have just been the theme tune around the world. And the theme tune and the score for The Adventures of Robinson Crusoe is the first time that, um, you know, my mum used to always say the thing with Douglas is he thinks too much. Uh, and um, I remember, even though I was like about five. Feeling that this music really made me kind of feel sad, and I didn't really understand why, but I liked the feeling. And it's not that I like feeling sad, but I remember going, it kind of makes me feel sad, but it's beautiful. And I really believe, and I think if people think about a lot of music that they know I like, or music I'm talking about in this show, I feel that so much that I love in music, you can hear this track, you can hear Uh, Brian Wilson, kind of Pet Soundsy kind of stuff going on in it. You can hear Serge Gainsbourg and Ennio Morricone type things. There's so much that I love in music that's contained in this track. I really see it as being a kind of really seminal thing. And there's a bunch of people, you know, kind of, I guess, kind of creative people or people who I know are big fans of music. I think it's got a similar place for them. I remember like, you know, uh, talking to Jarvis Cocker about it at length, because he'd used the, one of the themes from this series in his programme about outsider art. And he was sort of saying the same, you know. And later on, it was repeated during quite a lot of the summer holidays. Mm. And my main thing that I liked much more than the actual action that was happening mm. was the music. It was almost like I didn't have a the record then. So it was like, well, I need, I need to watch the programme every day so I can hear this music. Not mm-hmm. just the main theme, but the incidental music.
0: It was all written by the same guy.
2: Yeah, well, uh, Robert, Mellon Robert Mellon was a kind of right. credit, credited writer. Um, and as I say, I, years later, I heard some of the actual original score for, in Europe, and it was all, like, you know, much more... You know, and, and not this kind of invent of slightly jazz, fused kind of uh, strange, melancholic kind of music. It was yeah. much more... Um, yeah, ordinary, but I I think this music's extraordinary, you know, yeah, um, and it's still, you know, it never grows tired. Every time I listen to it, I'm like transported to, you know, my own little beautiful desert island.
0: Yeah, and it, it ran for. I was reading that it was actually still going on in the early eighties. They were still showing the episodes on on repeats because BBC still had the license for it until that point. Um and I I do remember watching it through the seventies as well and and it never seemed to age I was all it was, it was so I think it was just so different to everything else that was on. Um, yeah,
2: I think one of the things, but it did make it seem sort of it didn't. I feel if it had had that other soundtrack, it probably would have seemed a bit dated because right. that soundtrack had a quite dated kind of thing about it. But this did feel kind of a bit like I guess some of the music you were getting from the BBC. Um. Uh, I forgot what we were called, the BBC workshop, kind of sound workshop, yeah. what were we called?
1: Was oh. that not the, uh, I, I used to get Doctor Who sound effects albums, and it was like the science workshop or something, the Radiophonic
2: radio workshop? Radio workshop, yes, I've got a radio workshop and a big box over there, which is out of shop. Um, but I didn't want to rush off. <laughs> you
0: know,
2: and as I say, it's a bizarre thing how yeah. it's good to do these kind of things. Because these things do. Things that you think you could never possibly forget the name of Radio Radiophonic Workshop. Because it's something that's really important to you. And then one day you find out, I can't remember <laughs> what it's called.
0: That's that's old age amongst many other things, I think, yeah. Douglas, we've all that. It's, it's in, in there, there somewhere.
2: I can't yeah. always access it.
0: Well, I, I think also you because it is connected to your memory of the the moon landing stuff. It very much kind of time and date stamps it, doesn't it for you? Mm-hmm. So you know that that will never be forgotten because it's not just a kind of passing TV series that that you quite liked or a song you quite liked. Yes, yeah. and it connected. was
2: reinforced. It was reinforced because I like you. I watched probably a number of summer holidays.
0: Yeah, you absolutely.
2: know when I was going to school, and then. I eventually got a single, with the theme, and then I eventually got a CD, which had the whole soundtrack. Yeah. You know, so it's been reinforced, so I'm not likely to forget it.
0: I did see a little quote from a guy called Glenn Mitchell, who was a, a radio commentator at the time for the BBC. And he said, the theme tune with its rumbling introductory notes, suggesting the rolling waves of the on-screen title sequence remains distinctive as does the full incidental score comprising numerous cues that in each case represent some part of Crusoe's existence.
2: There's also just something about, also, there's a kind of interesting juxtaposition with that, with Moonland and stuff, because in a way, that's like, you know, in the days of Robinson Crusoe, people be away exploring new worlds on sailing ships and kind of getting lost there and being yeah. uh, sort of marooned. And there was a sort of feeling about that was the moon was almost like a new distant island yeah. you know and these people when they were on the moon were separated from home and would they actually get back
0: do you think the bbc thought of that at the time
2: i don't know but you know it's something that's something that's occurred to me particularly as i got older more yeah. and more you just sat yeah. in that the notion
0: yeah absolutely well it's, it's a lovely song so um so we'll, we'll give it a play so, uh, from uh, written by Robert Mellon, this is the theme tune from the adventures of Robinson Crusoe.
1: I have to say, I, when I listen to this today, I've got no memory of Robinson Crusoe from being a, a kid. You're
0: a, you're a puppy, aren't you? Yeah. But you, not, you don't remember it from the 70s or the. No, no? Uh, genuinely was it. was kind of omnipresent, I think, uh, Douglas wasn't. See, I puppy.
2: can imagine me would be out doing things like boys would often do like going out and climbing trees and <laughs> you know getting, it's getting, the, getting it's quite every day and scrapes. just
1: run about the golf course and climb trees and hey, you're, you're getting right getting any scrapes with pals and playing football well I would be oh, staying no, no, home no,
2: no football
0: you know, I don't well, think no that was me with the football I think um, or chasing well, the girls be, or, or whatever so
2: I'd be staying home just watching like Why as much you? TV as I possibly could <laughs> you know the one I always when remember was coming out and my big sister would go, no, he's too busy watching television and <laughs> the drawing one, pictures. But the you know, she to play
1: football. The one I remember as a kid was say uh, the flashing blade. Do you remember? You oh yeah, Zorro. Yeah, that's things.
2: not Zorro. So, it's two like guys during the French Revolution.
0: Oh, of course, it is, My apologies. Yeah, of course. It is, but that's
2: yeah. a great theme, and White Horse is a great one as well.
0: Yeah, and Champion the Wonder Horse, of course.
2: Champion
0: yeah. the Wonder Horse. No, it's listen. That's that's our that's our youth there song. So moving back towards sort of '60s sunshine pop, uh, your next selection I think is "Which I Think, yeah, said that correctly by Harper's Bazaar. Well, as
2: far as I know, and that's how you sing it. So,
0: um, <laughs> and it's a it's a cover version, I think. Douglas, is that is that right? Yeah, it
2: was written by a, a Native American musician, and it's based on a chant by the Co Tribe, which he's a member of, and um, he was a jazz saxophonist. And he recorded the first version of it uh, with his band, Everything Is Everything. Um, and there's been various versions. There was a kind of minor sort of hit version by, I think it was Brewer and Shipley. And I think their version's almost unlistenable in my mind because they've done that thing of going, let's do a cover version of this great song, but let's change the melody. Yeah. You go, well, why, why are you even doing it? Then just don't do it. And yeah. um, this isn't a track I was aware of, 1969. I was aware of their cover version of Anything Goes and also the cover version of um, Simon Garfunkel, um Feeling Groovy. Feeling Groovy, He's, yeah. That was a
0: bit of a chart, uh, that was fairly big chart success, wasn't it? The yeah, Feeling yeah. Groovy. It's yeah.
2: like Simon <laughs> Grafunkel didn't really have a hit with that. And, you know, so they had a hit with it. Um, years later, um i went to japan with beam Expandits, and you know people would be showing me you know records that you thought i would like and stuff and there was reissues of all the harper's Bazaar records and i got them all you know because i really liked those two tracks mm-hmm. and this was from their fourth album yeah which was the album i cared for least but this was a track out of all of the albums that just like blew my mind. And I remember, you know, myself, Francis McDonald, eh, Norman Blake, we all just became that sort of thing. I'm so obsessed by a song, listened to it again and again. And it's a kind of circle song. It kind of just yeah. kind of goes around. It could last for five hours, you know, because it's, <laughs> so, I guess, it is like originally yeah. I kind of chant a native chant.
0: Yeah.
2: And I would never have grown tired of it. Also, a song that we really loved was Outdoor Minor by Wire. It's kind of like a real pop moment from the band Wire. And um, I remember playing this record to Alan McGee, and Alan McGee was like, oh, it sounds like Wire, it sounds like Outdoor Minor. And that almost hadn't occurred to us. And then when he said that, we're like, wow, I wonder why we're fans of this. Um, and I totally could hear that. Um, and BMX Bandits, you know, um, we've never done a proper studio recording of it, but it's a we don't play it every time we play. One time we were playing at every gig, and people would, you know, go. The highlight of our show was this song. You go, it's not even our song, <laughs> you know, and people would love it. But the Harper's bizarre version was the version, you know, and I've heard lots of versions of this song. I mean, there's lots out there, and this is the version that still kind of kills me the most. You is, know? There a,
0: is there a version from a couple of the guys in the Bonzo Dog Band? Yeah, Keith Moon in a, I think yeah, it's like, right. yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember hearing that some time ago, which is as as, as interesting as it sounds. You know, it's, yeah, uh, but
2: it's kind of it's still kind of faithful to. Oh, there, yeah, it's, yeah. It's not can, like they've yeah. done it as like a, a gag or anything, yeah. But when I, was, um,
0: when I was sort of googling some stuff on it, I also read that the Supremes have done a, a cover of it, but I've never never heard. I've that. not heard that. Wow, yeah, Unreleased, unreleased um, or certainly unreleased at the time. So I don't know. Maybe it's come out. Later, I don't know, but um, I'd like to hear yeah. that for
2: sure. I'll, I'll, yeah. I mean, I would love to hear that. yeah. Are going to do
0: some, some checking on that? Um, but it's
2: just one of those songs. I just, and it's funny because, you know, um, uh, there are some English lyrics in it, but really, yeah. I guess, it's not really about the lyrics. It's just something about it, it transcends that. And music, I do, it's funny because so much of us kind of soft pop music is so massive in, you know, in, in Japan. And a lot of the kids who really love that music are older people who love that music, they don't necessarily even understand the lyrics. So, you know, music is this amazing international language. Mm. So this song that came out of a Native American chant, you know, touches me as much as any piece of music I've ever heard. You know, I come from such a different world. My kind of experience um, of the world around me is probably so different in so many ways, but it's fundamental things. You know, that connect us all as kind of human beings, and there's certain things I think uh, talk to so many of us, no matter where we come from. And music's one of them. Yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, there's a reason it's universal, isn't? Isn't there? I guess because it, you know, tugs at all the same emotional heartstrings yeah. that we all and got, whether it, you're from the UK or America or anywhere. You know, so. You know,
2: and for some people, I do think they mm-hmm. think songs are all about lyrics, and they're kind of about like, why would I? Why would I listen to a track from France? Or, you know, blah, blah blah. I can't stand to understand the words and go, yeah, but. The music and the arrangement and the tone of the people's voices are saying all this stuff, but you don't need to know what we're saying. In fact, yeah. sometimes it's maybe better because you don't have the baggage. Yeah, you know. So yeah. this is a good example of that. And as I say, it was a kind of life. It, there are certain records that come along, and it feels like it's a life-changing eureka moment, and this was definitely one of them for us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the band themselves, I don't know if you know this, they were kind of newsworthy as well, in such. Do you remember the story about them, uh, their plane getting hijacked? So they um, they were on a on a flight thirty uh, first of October. Uh, I'll get this right now. So coming, returning to San Francisco after playing in Pasadena, the flight was hijacked. Right. So all the passengers were safely released in Denver. However, the plane and its crew continued on to Rome, Italy, where the hijacker was apprehended. The incident covered six thousand nine hundred miles, the longest distance ever covered in an airplane hijacking incident.
2: Wow, uh, in nineteen sixty nine, Harvest yeah. Bazaar released Leaving on a Jet Plane. They
0: did, it was on it's on the album, isn't it? Um I, know. Which, <laughs> I don't which, know if that was before saying, or after the the no, the, the hijacking. It's gonna, it's the, <laughs> Well, they, uh, one of the guys, uh, as Ray Scopatoni, I can't remember his first name, mm-hmm. uh, he said it was the best publicity they'd ever had. Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously they were all over the papers and stuff. So uh, maybe it was connected to the the, the single that they released. Like, I don't Possibly
2: know. Well, simply cashing in on it. Ted Templeton from the band went on to produce things like Van Morrison and yeah. Van Halen. If you were called Van, <laughs> there was a chance you were going to be producing your record. a slightly different. A place to go when you hear
0: this musically <laughs> but it's, it's a fantastic song uh, and Madee knew this when again when we were talking about your playlist me had a second guess that this might be on it so um, so I think we're all delighted that you have stuck it on cool. So so let's hear it so from the album Harper's Bazaar 4 this is Harper's Bazaar with Witchy Taito okay so that was Harper's Bazaar with Witchy Taito we yep. had a tv soundtrack for your second selection douglas and we move into the world of films for your next one so tell us about "Jean" by rod mccune
2: um this song yeah a, a lot of these songs are attached to a very can kind of important personal memories i mean our songs like the harper's Bazaar one which is um attached to personal memories but not from the year 1969 although that's when it came out this one actually takes me back to my childhood, childhood, childhood. Um, <laughs> my dad was a very different sort of person than I am. He in what way? was quite a sort of shy person, not a performer in any sort of way. You know, he couldn't, the idea of doing things like talking in public would have, you know, just not been his thing at all. He wouldn't have been comfortable. So he wasn't a performer at all, but he used to sing. My mum was called Jean, and he used to sing across the kitchen table to my mum. Uh, you know who he totally adored this song by rod mccune called gene which was from the film the prime of machine brodie um which i didn't see until you know quite a few years later and i love this a film um rod mccune was one of these guys he would pop up on bbc shows as a kind of special guest like you know the the Chula Clark show or yeah. you know the Silla Black show or whatever, you know, he's the sort of guy he would be and he was usually accompanied by an old English sheepdog um, and <laughs> called Kelly, which was his kind of his dog, you know, and they yeah. would sing in kind of really hushed tones. And I always really loved when he appeared in these shows and would pay attention. He seemed to kind of, you know, these sort of things when you're a lot younger, we just sort of wash over you, but someday'll come on for some reason. But just stands out and you don't even really know why. It might have been because he'd he's a big dog and he'd be wearing his kind of big jumper and he'd be sitting on the floor, like not kind of standing up, kind of, you know, yeah. and singing this song, you know, and or singing some other song he know, He was the first guy to write a whole album for Frank Sinatra, um, called A Man Alone. Yep. And about half the album's poetry. You know, you're commissioned for a guy that's kind of considered to be the greatest pop or popular singer of the of the day and you present an album that's half poetry, you go, well, that's pretty bold, it's pretty far out. Yeah. Um, and I've always loved Rod McCune. He's probably the artist that I've covered most when I play live shows. You know, there's a whole bunch of his songs, but I've sung at shows. Um, and when I do solo shows, sometimes there's even going to be a couple of Rod McCune songs. It's just yeah. kind of personal fave. He's one of these guys who made hundreds of albums. They're not all great. <laughs>
0: And he's got, you know, again, he's got a Jack's Braille association as well, hasn't
2: he? Yeah. I, no, it's funny because some people actually kind of put this Jack Braille thing down a wee bit. He wrote the lyrics for Seasons in the Sun and he wrote the lyrics for If You Go Away. And um, some people, I feel, think that his lyrics aren't dark enough compared to the original Braille lyrics. But actually, if you listen to his lyric, you, if you listen to his recording of Seasons in the Sun compared to Terry Jack's, the lyrics are actually a lot darker, and the intent of the songs a lot darker. But he also uh, wrote with Jacques Brel. Jacques Brel really respected him. There's a couple of songs where Rod McCune wrote the music and wrote the original English song, but Jacques Brel translated into French. It wasn't just, you know, a one-way street. Right. Um, but yeah, this song, as I say, it's you know a really precious kind of memory. I mean, and you know, in the intro, you were saying about me branding myself hopeless romantic. And um, it's a quite dangerous thing. And my sister and I have discussed this. It was always like my parents had such an amazing love affair. And, you know, right up to the end, we'd still be walking hand in hand. Never heard them have an argument. And I used to assume we just protected us from that. But I remember leaving the hospital when my dad died. And my mom went, we never had an argument. And you're like, Poof. you know, and so... I think both my sister and I, go, as a kid, or even as a young adult, you think, that that's an achievable thing. Yeah. And obviously, for some people, it is. But you know, it's almost like then you kind of go, "Why? Why am I not able to do this? I get my parents found. Yeah. You know, so easy. Why is that not? You know, and you just kind of go because they just had a special thing. And of course, you know, my mom and dad both now gone um and this song you know remains this incredible a uh, memory of kind of the love that they had for each other you know it's kind of really you know as a little kid kind of seeing your dad singing a romantic song across the mm-hmm. Christmas table to your mom
1: yeah
2: you know and her kind of kind of almost blushing and things like that because it was out of character for him so mm-hmm. If it was me i wouldn't be out of character because you know i'm a big show off uh. Yeah.
0: You know, and, and the song itself, uh, I mean the, the art of the film was obviously big in sixty nine. It you know, it ended up getting some Oscar nominations and it was a yeah. fairly big sort of selling film as well. And he released the single but didn't get anywhere. But then uh, another artist covered it and they had a huge hit with it. And it's one of those perverse things, isn't it? Where
2: yeah, I think the character the, the other arts was called Oliver. Is Oliver. that right? That's right, yeah. And it, it's when you listen to it. It's it kind of copies this special but it's not as good. No, it's, it's, good. <laughs> it's no, I
0: would, not. I would good. agree with that. I absolutely would. And, just, I, and I'll, do, I'll tell you something to cheer you up because it was a big hit. But um, the Oliver version, but it didn't get to number one in America. It only got to number two, and the song that kept off number one was "Sugar, Sugar." Which yeah. I know you're going to touch on later on. So yes, there's okay. a little bit of kind of you know serendipity in there or or whatever, um, which was good. And also the the score itself the song got nominated uh, for an Oscar the following year, mm-hmm. um, and the sort of the best original song from a from a film. Um, it didn't manage to win. Can you can you have a guess what won the? Yeah,
2: what was it? That year? <laughs>
0: Uh,
1: bro.
2: Was
0: it? <laughs> you it on <laughs> Absolutely money. on the money. Uh, I I thought, love. You, thought you I might love know you that. Know.
2: Yeah, I love it. You know. Yeah,
0: I, I've not quite heard that kazoo version yet. So is that is that is that another album that's in the pipeline or? Oh yeah. Do you
2: know? I have been thinking <laughs> partly for my own amusement. You know, do a kazoo album. I'm um, saying to Norman he's going, "You've got to do it. You've got to do it." And then I'm thinking, who's actually going to want that? <laughs> but um, this is the, the kazoo that featured on the very first Beam expand its recordings from like 1985 1986. still got it and I've still got it as well you know of course. well you, yeah. you can
0: tell I won't edit that that out that's um that's that's there uh,
2: forever that but gosh, I love Bert Bacharach, Bacharach. you know Bert Bacharach. there's no Bacharach choices in my list but that's kind of odd because he is he's another you know massive favorite of mine big inspiration yeah.
0: But if you're going to lose to someone, then losing to Bacarac's not, not too bad, is it,
2: to I be know, fair? I but I flipped it round, because tonight, Rod, Rod McEwan's getting to shine and Burt's not.
0: He's the winner, he's the winner, absolutely. But well, we'll hear it then, because um, it's, yeah. uh, it's a fantastic tune. So from the soundtrack of The Prime of Machine Brody, this is Rod McCune with Gene. Hello there, and our conversation about Robert Cuehan, Song Jean, and the primary Miss Jean Brodie takes us to the end of part one of our music podcast with Douglas T. Stewart, discussing the music and the stories from 1969. Hope you've enjoyed that, and part two will be along very soon. See you